Hello, and welcome to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, broadcasting from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York, on the unceded homelands of the Mohican people known today as the Stockbridge-Munsee community. I'm your host, Alexis Goldsmith. And welcome back, Alexis. I'm Bria Barthel. Today on the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, we begin with correspondent Marsha Lazarus talking with local peace activist Daniel Noah Moses about the human challenges in finding peace between Israel and Palestine. Then in our next Election Watch segment, Elizabeth E.P. Press interviews Democrat Carol Harvin, who is running against Republican Tom Casey for the District 6 seat in the Troy City Council. Later on, Sina Bazela Hickey and muralist Mirza Hamid, considered the Iranian Banksy, discusses his current art exhibit at the New Gallery in Hudson. After that, our roaming labor correspondent, Willie Terry, brings us part one of his interview with Eric Moser, professor and director of civic engagement at Skidmore College, about the school's labor project with students and community members through their Moore Documentary Studies Collaborative, also known as MDOCS. Finally, Hugh Johnson joins us once again to discuss climate and weather, this time with a look at the effects of the phenomenon El Nino. But first, here are the headlines. The Times Union reports that Corinne Sheldon, who recently announced that she is stepping down from her position as the Republican commissioner with the Rensselaer County Board of Elections, is the focus of a grand jury investigation being conducted by the state attorney general's office. The attorney general is examining her actions in certifying votes cast in 2020, a 2021 Working Families Party primary. Sheldon is accused of undercounting the votes for Gwen Wright, a Democrat who narrowly lost the Working Family Party line for county executive to a Republican political operative. The federal government has already indicted three other Republicans for voter fraud, including top county officials Jim Jordan and Richard Christ. Schenectady Police Chief Eric Clifford says an internal investigation into a police lieutenant's interaction with a member of the city council over the decision to tow a vehicle belonging to the lawmaker's friend shows the officer acted correctly. The Times Union reports that the matter is on the agenda of Schenectady's Ethics Board, which received a complaint about the phone call from the lieutenant who serves on the ethics panel. The controversial Queemans-based Carver Sand and Gravel is seeking permission to expand its mining operation in Fulton County to increase the supply of larger rocks and deliver materials for offshore wind projects via the Queemans port. The Adirondack Park Agency last week postponed a vote on the application to expand the mining operation along the southern border of the park. The governor has signed legislation expanding the hours for alcohol sales from 10 a.m. to 10 p.m., seven days a week. The change to earlier hours on Sunday is partially designed to make it easier for Buffalo football fans to purchase alcohol before the games. And that's it for the headlines. For those of you just tuning in, you're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. This is listener-supported radio that builds community in Troy and the surrounding capital region through broad grassroots participation. Our content is produced by volunteers. To learn how you can contribute your time, talents, or financial support, see the Donate button at mediasanctuary.org, email us at hmm at mediasanctuary.org, or call us 
518-272-239L. We begin tonight, or we begin the program with Marsha Lazarus's interview with local peace activist Daniel Noah Moses, who shares his perspectives on the conflict in Palestine and Israel as someone who lived and worked in Jerusalem. I was teaching American history in Yerevan, Armenia, but I got involved in the conflict there and I realized that people, when they get siloed into different places where they get different media, where they have different friends, where they get different kinds of information, they're in, they live, they inhabit completely different worlds and they don't understand one another. And I had a kind of revelation for myself that this was the challenge that human beings face on the planet because we cannot solve anything else. We cannot solve issues of climate change. We cannot solve problems of, of social injustice or of inequality. We cannot solve any of these problems if we can't talk to one another and if we can't engage across lines of difference. Welcome to Hudson Mohawk Magazine. This is Marsha Lazarus. I have the pleasure of sitting with Daniel Noah Moses, currently of Troy, New York. So I understand, Daniel, that you lived in Jerusalem for 11 years, as well as Yerevan, Armenia for two and a half? I lived in Jerusalem for 11 years. I worked there longer. I, I started, I, I worked, first I was in Armenia, and now, of course, there's the conflict that Armenians just lost to war with Azerbaijan, which is a, a whole other different subject. And then I, I started to work with an organization called Seeds of Peace that brings together, well, Palestinians and Israelis were, the, were the, the first group. And then they expanded, we expanded to other conflicts like in India and Pakistan and Cyprus and also across the U.S. But, we, but the uh, Israeli-Palestinian conflict was the, the beginning. And I moved to Jerusalem to focus specifically on working with Palestinian and Israeli educators, artists, and community leaders. But Jerusalem and the Israeli-Palestinian conflict seemed to be, for me, a distilled version, a, a distilled form of this conflict, because everything is in such a small space. You can go a few miles or even down even a short walk, and you, you are literally inhabiting different universes. I had the great privilege and the honor to be able to travel all the time across to Palestinian villages and refugee camps, to Israeli villages and kibbutzim, and, and to Palestinian and Israeli cities. I have very close friends in, in Gaza and the West Bank. I have very close friends in Israel. I have family in Israel. I have Israeli Jewish cousins who are in the army, people I care about and love deeply all across the region. So for me, the current violence, I, I, I know people very well who are suffering on all sides. And when in the last major violence episode of, of 2014, when I was living in Jerusalem, I had missiles come close to me. Like I, I actually passed a burning missile from Gaza outside of Jerusalem. And then I, well, there were very nervous, scared teenage Israeli soldiers who pointed machine guns at me. So I had the guns pointed at me from the Israelis and the missiles coming at me from Gaza. So, so that's where I'm coming from in terms of my, uh, my perspective. I've jumped worlds and I've seen uh, and I care deeply about people who live very different realities. But now we're all suffering from the violence. It sounds, Daniel, like there are so many forces working against the kind of work that you want to do uh, to bring folks from different perspectives together, so many forces working against it. What motivates you to do this? If you think that human beings have equal dignity, then the next thing you need to do is listen to people who are different. Um, 
and try to see what kinds of perspectives and needs are out there to meet those needs. Um, and I do believe this is a fundamental challenge that human beings have as a species at this moment. When I went to Israel-Palestine in 2006 to live, I'd already been working in the conflict for a couple of years. Um, I'd been working on, I'd done summer programs for educators for a couple of years. When I moved, I, I had a whole bunch of money to do projects and things were not very hopeful, but they were far more hopeful than they are now. When I was there in 2006, we went, we, we went, I went to a peace conference in Anatolia, Turkey with hundreds of Palestinians and Israelis and Europeans and Americans there to try to figure out how to build a more peaceful, more just future. Regularly, we had meetings of hundreds and hundreds of people in Jerusalem, East Jerusalem and West Jerusalem, Palestinians, Israelis, internationals coming together still with some hope. The situation was terrible. It was after the second intifada. It was not, it was not a rosy, happy situation. The injustices were, were clear for people who wanted to look, but there was still hope and there were still lots of people still active, although they would say to me, the peaceniks I met, Palestinian and Israeli, said, and the Israelis here said, hey, it was so much better in the 90s. Robin was killed uh, and that destroyed things. And then we had the second intifada where now we can't trust the Palestinians. So those two things created a terrible sense of distrust and, and punctured the hopes of, of, of any kind of peace. Um, but then since then, it's gotten only worse. I, I was talking today with a good friend of mine, Mohammed, who's from Gaza, and he is very good friends with a woman named Orly who, who lives, well, she lives now in the States, but she, she grew up and her family is still uh, right a few miles away from Mohammed uh, in, in Israel, next to the Gaza Strip. And in 2014, they met and I saw, I was with them when they met and they just cried together about how they used to, back in the 80s or, or 70s, things were much more open. People would go back and forth and Israelis would go to Gaza, Gaza, people from Gaza would go to Tel Aviv. It, it was a very different situation then. And they cried about, about the suffering and the violence for all of them. And um, they, they're still talking. They're still talking and, and they both have people they care about, people they love who are, who are dead or, or, or in danger of dying right now. And their their neighborhoods, their air are being destroyed. And they just wanna, and they're still talking as friends and they still care about each other. And, and they're not going insane with hate for one another. And my my big question is how how do you take that and and make it a larger movement? Or you know, just they don't hate each other and they actually care deeply about each other and they they wanna find a, a way to live together. Um and how do you make that possible? There are lots of people like that. A lot. I've, I was on the border communities of Gaza, the Israeli border communities, um, and visited people there who are active peace builders. This one woman I met in a border town, is either a moshav or kibbutz, I don't remember. Uh, so not exactly a town, a community. She is in sight of Gaza, and she had an art project to show peaceful symbols to Gazans so they would see symbols of peace from her um, basically her backyard. I mean, not her backyard, but the community's backyard. And because she said, I just want them to see that there's a human face here and that we, we're not the government. We care about them and, and we want something different. And so she's a, a peace builder. And there are lots, I know Gazans, Palestinians from Gaza, who also who came to, to work with, with me and others and were so kind and 
so helpful and wonderful with their Israeli friends. So it, it can happen, but there's so much work that has to be done to make it happen at any larger scale. And the media is so distorted. There's such polarization in how they cover the different stories. And most people do not have human connection to people from a, a wide variety of perspectives. So they get into a corner. I'm, I'm hearing you say that somehow people have to get beyond these narrow, biased views of each other. Thoughts on ways to move forward? The answer is the two peoples must engage with one another and figure out how to live together. And so I condemn fully and absolutely and unequivocally with all of my heart what Hamas militants did uh, to Israeli men, women, and children in their homes. I mean, it's an awful, awful, brutal murder, but, you know, multiple murders, um, terrible cruelty. And I condemn what Israeli is doing, Israel is doing and what they're about to do. And I, I urge the Israeli leadership and American supporters of Israel to say, stop, don't, don't make a million refugees or, or, or throw a million people from their homes. That's not going to help. That's no victory. That's no victory. That that will not make Israel more secure. That will not make Israelis more secure. That will only create more human suffering. It will only create more anger and hatred and fear. And it will only continue the cycle of violence. It's not security. The two peoples must engage with one another and figure out how to live together. There was a, a very short clip that I saw of an Israeli father whose daughter is one of the kidnapped people. So Hamas kidnapped her. And he's interviewed, and, he, and it's a beautiful video, very short clip. Uh, I don't remember her name, but they say, what should, what, he, first he speaks beautifully about his daughter, and he says what a, what a wonderful kid she is, what a, beautiful, what a beautiful person she is. And then the interviewer says, what should the Israeli government do? He says, they should get my daughter back, but through peace, because I know that the Palestinians also have mothers and fathers, and, and, and I don't want more violence. So a lot of it comes from, being Jewish, that I'm so critical and so upset and want to say, stop, there's, there's another way. There's a song that Mira Wad and Achinom Nini, a Palestinian Israeli and a Jewish Israeli singer sang. It was part of the Eurosong uh, vision. It was, there must be another way. There must be another way. And the way that Netanyahu is, is retaliating and this government is retaliating is not going to help in the long term. Thanks to Marsha Lazarus for part one of her talk with Daniel Noah Moses about his experiences in both Israel and Palestine, and thus his informed call for peace. The second part of the interview, plus other pieces on the Middle East conflict, will be aired later this week. Up next, in preparation for Election Day this Tuesday, November 7th, we continue to bring interviews with, oh, I'm sorry, on Tuesday. <laughs> read that wrong. On Tuesday, November 7th is the election. We continue to bring interviews with candidates in local elections. In this segment, Elizabeth E.P. Press talks with Carol Harvin, the Democratic candidate for Troy City Council's District 6 seat. As we continue to cover the Troy City Council elections today, we are talking to Carol Harvin, who is running for District 6 on the Democratic ticket. And she is a retired state worker and proud union member. Carol, welcome to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. 
and thank you for having me. So Carol, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? I was born and raised in the city of Troy. I went through the school district of Troy, and I'm so proud to be a resident in the city of Troy. I never resided in any other district. My daughter attended the Troy City School District. My oldest grand, who is 18, 19 years old now, have attended the Troy City School District. But we're so proud about my granddaughter that is now 19 years old. She went to a Catholic school, and she found out what activities they had in the Troy City School District. She wanted to get out of the Catholic school and attend the Troy City School District. Carol, you are a retired state worker. What, what does that mean? Tell us what that is. What did you do? Well, I put in all my years, and I started working for the state of New York in 1979 at the New York State Workers' Compensation Board, where I was a member of the CSEA, which is a Civil Service Employees Association. So I started as an active member of the union. I became a steward, which is a shop steward for grievances, and I elevated to a secretary. I elevated to vice president of the union, and then I became president of the union. And I held that position for 28 years. I had opposition, but I won every single election. I am a pro-union activist. The members who work have a right to be taken care of. They have a right when it comes to an increase in pay, and they have a right to work in a safe environment. And after putting in all my years with CSEA, and I got promoted and elevated to PEF, which is the Public Employees Federation, I was a secretary for PEF Local 357. There has been a lot of news about unions recently. There's been uh, UPS workers almost went on strike. The auto workers, the riders union was on strike. When members go on strike, they're voicing a statement. We are being underpaid. We do a lot to make those who are in the high position, the hierarchy, make them look good, and we're doing less as far as pay goes. We're getting up every day and going to work. I support Every single union worker that's out on the picket line and doing everything they can to make their voices heard. I will be out there in support of them. I, too, know what it's like to not receive a raise. I, too, know what it's like to be underpaid. I, too, know what it's like to be working hours and hours and not being able to get off on a timely fashion your normal work day and have to work overtime, mandatory overtime, should not be a case every single day. 
Carol Harvin, how will you apply your experiences from your past work and your uh, dedication to the union to this position in Troy City Council? I'm running to represent District 6 for the Troy City Council to hear their voices, to let them know I'm available. What are your issues? There's so much going on in the city of Troy as far as violence, to calm the violence, make an effort to get the guns off the streets, talk with parents. Do you know where your children are? Do you know what your children are doing to also help with the trash and the pickups? The men in Troy are doing their jobs, but if you have absentee landlords. All they want is to fill the apartments up with tenants, and they're not, they are not con concerned about the trash in Troy. I will tackle the trash and illegal dumping to clean up our cities and alleyways, support common sense budgets to protect Troy taxpayers, Fight to remove illegal guns from our streets to keep neighborhoods safe. Improve transportation options and make roadways safer for local families. And I love what they have done in the city of Troy. Well, they have bike paths. Troy is improving, but there's still a lot to be done. I also know that they want to revamp the traffic for the 18-wheelers to go another route so they can just go get right on to the throughway and not go through the cities with all the noise and the traffic in the morning. And then they want to do improvements on the bridges for heavy traffic. They're working on things that need to be improved in the city of Troy, but it's still a lot to be done. And... Being elected, I will make sure that every concern that is addressed to me, I will be there to address it, and people will hear my voice. We are in campaign season. The election is November 7th, and early election is, starts the 28th. What are you doing to get your name out there in District 6 and what are you hearing about issues folks in District 6 want our city to address? In District 6, they're speaking of the crime, and they're speaking also minor issues, but they're not minor issues as far as I'm concerned. There's, when people address things, it's something that they want to be rectified. And one of the uh, residents said about the park in South Troy, she is a very strong advocate about that part. It's for the kids to go and enjoy themselves. And there was a fire. One of the kids went that she supplied all the books for that part. A kid went and put the band on fire and burned the books. That was a great concern for her. The others were the streets clean streets, and the alleys. Why does it have to take another city to do improvement and then it, it trickulates to Troy? 
we should be the first runners in the city of Troy to take care of what is needed. And, and I will make sure that all these concerns are heard once I'm on that city Troy council. And I know many people's local backyard issues take priority when you're out talking to people on the campaign, but there's also been a lot of bigger picture issues. Troy has been on the New York Attorney General Office's radar for the closing of Burdett, for the high-speed response where a cop ran into a civilian fatally on 15th and Hoosick, and regarding Harbor Point Gardens, which is a housing complex in District 6 where 130-plus people were homeless, out of their homes because of code violations. Now, Harbor Point Gardens is in District 6. Have you been up there, and what, what is your reaction to this? This is what I'm referring to about absentee landlords. They get these buildings, they put tenants in there, and all they want is the rent. We have to stay on top of what's going on and find these owners of the property. And if they're not in code regarding these properties, have them fine. Find them over and over and over again. And then the situation will be rectified. You should not have tenants in a building is, that is not up to code. You should not have tenants paying because they feel that they're comfortable and that's all they could afford. No. If there's something going wrong in a building, tenants should know where to go and contact people. And when you are a city council member, they should know the name of every person in their district, who they should call. And that city council person should get on the phone and contact who is responsible for the safety of tenants. And if they don't rectify what they're doing, find the landlord first and then take over the building. Thanks for talking a little bit about Harbor Point Gardens. And Carol Harvin, we have surpassed our time limit, but I would like to give you the last word Carol, why should our audience vote for you in November of 23 for District 6 City Council? Is there anything we left out that you want our audience to know about you? I'm a person who cares about people. I'm a person you can contact. I'm a person who will respond. And I'm a person who is reliable and a person that is trustworthy. Vote for Carol and you'll find out. Carol Harvin, District 6 Democratic candidate for Troy City Council. Thanks for joining us on the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. That was Elizabeth E.P. Press talking with Carol Harvin, the Democratic candidate for Troy City Council's District 6 seat. E.P.'s interview with Carol's opponent, Republican Tom Casey, will air in our next program. For interviews with candidates for other offices, Search our website for Election Watch 2023. For those to uh, search Election Watch 2023 at org. And for those just tuning in, I'm Alexis. And I'm Bria Barthel. You're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine on the Hudson Mohawk Radio Network on WOOC LP 105.3 FM Troy. 
W-O-O-G-L-P, 92.7 FM Troy, W-O-O-S-L-P, 98.9 FM Schenectady, and W-O-O-A-L-P, 106.9 FM Albany, plus streaming online at mediasanctuary.org. This program comes from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York. If you like what you hear, you can support this program by joining our team or just by telling a friend. Sharing is caring. Find today's stories and more at mediasanctuary.org. And in our next segment, muralist Mirza Hamid's work focuses on humanity and on creating with accessible materials. His images can be found in Hudson, New York, in the pop-up gallery called The New Gallery, tucked behind the Basilica. Hudson Mohawk Magazine correspondent Sina Bazila Hickey was there and spoke with the gallery owners. Hi, this is Hale Atobegi of the New Gallery in Hudson. We're at the exhibition opening of The Origin of All Things by Mirza Hamid. Who is Mirza Hamid? Mirza Hamid is a street artist from Tehran, Iran. And he paints with a red earth pigment that was the first paint used by humanity ever in cave paintings. And from then on in every culture, in Greek vases, in all kinds of paintings that everybody's done until now. And he still extracts this paint somewhere and he paints with it. Why did he choose earth-based paint? Because to him, this is a color of unity because all humans, everyone on earth can get this. You can get it still everywhere. And everyone has used it. Every culture has used it. And he said um, that this is a unifying color for him. And it goes back to the origin of time. So he wants to go back to this inherent need that we must all have to create art, to take it in, to contemplate it, to just you know, have it in our lives. Which relates very much to the fact that he began as a street artist. Yeah, he did. You don't need to go into a gallery to see this work. I mean, we are in a gallery now, yeah. but the uh, essence of street art is that it is not inside a gallery, but it comes to everybody on the street and everybody has access yeah. to it. And it does get painted over as things get painted over everywhere in every graffiti, in every city. But, you know, for him, the only difference is that sometimes he gets a note left for him that someone apologizes for this. And, you know, once he painted on a government building and he got this note on Instagram, somebody saying, I'm so sorry, my boss made me do it. And, you know, we love your work. And he said that, you know, when a painting is in a gallery, it has protection. You know, it's not just there to be, you know, vandalized or painted over or anything. But the street art, the way he sees it, it does have its own protection. And its protection is its beauty. And it lasts long enough for it to last. And sometimes it can fight, sometimes it doesn't have it in it. But the beauty is its only armor. And the fact that he's gotten some notes that people have painted over it shows that there's... Um, I think some people may have the idea that street art is very unruly and there's no rules, but there's very much of like a street art etiquette and and this uh, collaboration of the person who's then come across or paints on top. So it's almost like communicating with the before, right? 
It is, but actually in this case, he, he, he does concern himself with that, but it's totally the opposite. He said to me that when he goes to choose a wall, he doesn't go scout the town or anything. He just walks around, and when there's a wall that appeals to him, he goes and paints it. And one of the things that's appealing to him about a wall is that it's a wall that there's no dispute over, that nobody's fighting over it. It's a peaceful wall. It has its own dignity, and it's just sitting there in its own majesty, and it's asking for him to paint on it. He doesn't have any interest in any kind of conflict of any sort. And the Times Union wrote about this gallery show saying that Mirza Hamid is the Banksy of Iran. When I think of Banksy, I think of the political messaging. What do you see as the common ground beyond just street art between the two artists? Not very much, just that they're both anonymous and they both paint on the street. But oh, right, he's the, anonymous. Yeah, the anonymity is probably what made him be known as the Banksy of Iran. Okay. Could you talk about some of the subject matter? I came into this gallery, and there's, from the earth, there's this red tone, and these very long, thin figures. Uh, somebody said uh, Giacometti. Uh, what do you, what should uh, a listener understand about the content of this work? The content of the work, he concerns himself with wonder and astonishment, the kind of thing that maybe happened, what might have happened to a human the first time you ever saw an animal. We don't know what that's like. We don't even know what we know when we knew it. Like, I know what a dog looks like, but I don't know when I know that, where I know that from. And the wonder and astonishment is gone. So these figures to him, are somehow a memory of the first time you ever saw anything. Some of what is exhibited here are photographs of his street art, but there's also pages from a sketchbook with still the spiral, the, the end of the spiral page. There's canvas. There's, there's like raw canvas, and there's also mounted canvas. Um, so he's evolved from the street to these canvases and now works on a whole bunch of different mediums. What was the evolution from the street art to the gallery and these different mediums? It's not really a linear evolution. He did start painting with this pigment on the street first. But before he did that, he had done drawings, you know, he had done art in his studio, but nothing like that. And this, when he started, when he just discovered this, like an epiphany, he just kept going and going. And his work in his studio also became different. The reason why these tarps are used is because he said that when you paint on a wall, the wall has a history, the wall has something that it can tell you about its life. And a raw canvas doesn't have that. But with the raw canvas, you know, you just have to be more courageous. Then you go and you make it into what you can with your images. So the enjoyment for him is different in this medium and that medium. The drawings are from his sketchbook. There are a couple that are not, that are more formal, formal drawings. Some of them are the ones that he does very quickly on the street to then paint the wall, and some of them are ones that are just the thoughts in his head, and they're fascinating. To see where the seed is, to see where the vocabulary is, to see where these shapes come from, how do they come together. So that's why we asked for the sketchbook. And without all of it together, you don't really get an entire overview or a good context. You need the photographs to see where he began, where these paintings come from, and who he is. And you need the canvases to feel that paint. And the drawings just tell you his mind. 
You were telling me about his use of candles as imagery and the reason that he was using candles. Mm -hmm. Could you tell me the story again? Yeah, he said that he uses candles because to him it's, of course, a symbol of, you know, light over darkness. But what's more interesting to him is that it's one of the tools that humanity first ever made and has been using. And it's never changed. We still use it the same way. We make it the same way. And its symbolism is different everywhere, but everyone uses it. So he's really interested in the origins of humanity. What should we understand in this current time and day? And is he saying something specifically about where he lives and resides? No, his art is absolutely not political, not based on any belief system, not religious. But it's just humanity with everything that's in it, including those things, but not specifically made to be a protest or anything at all like that. He just wants to know, you know, why we started to make art. And he's trying to go back to the beginning of it. And I think he succeeded. Because from what I see, everyone who sees the art just gets hit in the heart hard. <laughs> and you mentioned that it's not political, but behind you is a canvas cut out so there's two layers of it um that's uh reminiscent of the pita yeah it is and uh is it just talking about a mother's care for a child or is there something else to read into this i don't think there's anything to read into it other than what it is it is a pieta and it's a you know it's a classic painting that people have done for a long time it's not saying that i'm you know a christian today or it just has nothing to do with anything it is about, you know, the shape of humanity and motherhood. So at some point we heard the train come by. So yeah. we're down in Hudson by the riverfront, by the train station and by the Basilica right behind it in the gallery. How long is this show continuing to be up for? Through October 29th. And what would you like to leave our listeners with? What would you like them to understand about this exhibition and the work of Mirza Hamid? It's just that I feel like out of all the art that one sees coming out from everywhere, and some are quite beautiful, some are not, this just has something so unique about it. It really feels like a new thing, but the most familiar new thing. And if you don't mind me pointing out, you were very emotional in the beginning. What makes you very emotional about this work? When you see it, you'll see it. Pretty much nobody's come through here that hasn't cried. I don't know what it does, but it just does. Thank you so much. The new gallery in Hudson is showing the work of the artist known as Mirza Hamid until October 29th, open Thursday through Sunday, 11 to 4 p.m., or by appointment. Learn more at www.thenewgalleryhudson.com. Listeners, may remember that the Sanctuary has been presenting occasional programs with Skidmore College's MDocs program, the Moore Documentary Studies Collaborative. In this next segment, Willie Terry talks with Eric Moser, Professor and Director of Civic Engagement at Skidmore, about the project and and its work with a labor-related project. This is Willie Terry, your Roman labor correspondent for the Hustle Mohawk magazine. And today in our labor report, I have on the phone uh, history professor Eric Moser from Skidmore College in Saratoga Spring, New York. Uh, how you doing, Eric? I'm doing fine, thanks. It's uh, great to talk to you. All right. Uh, professor Moser uh, is here today to discuss with us an MDOC 
labor project he has been working on with his students and community members. But uh, prior to uh, doing this interview, uh, Professor, I went online to get some information so I could introduce you to our audience. And I want to say that you have a rich uh, academic history. And I see you received your PhD at the University of Wisconsin at Madison before coming here to teach at Skidmore College. And uh, you are a publisher and a writer of numerous articles. Uh, and I see also you like sci-fi, they said, and you like the Beatles and the Green Bay Packers. <laughs> that is right, yes. That sums me up. Right. And uh, before I get started on the labor project, just kind of tell us a little bit about the path that brought you to here, brought you here to Skidmore College. Uh, it's a long and interesting path. Um, I spent the first 33 years of my life in Wisconsin. Uh, I was born there. I grew up there. And then I went to get my undergraduate degree at the University of Wisconsin. Um, and I loved it so much, uh, being in Madison, Wisconsin, that I stayed there for 15 years uh, to get my master's degree, my PhD degree. And then at the age of 33, I thought it would be a good idea to go and see a little bit more of the country. Mm -hmm. So I taught for a year at a school in Pennsylvania. I taught at the University of New Mexico for two years. And then before coming up to Skidmore, finally, I taught at the University of Florida. And then uh, in 2009, I decided to make the trip up to Saratoga Springs, and I have been at Skidmore ever since. Mm, okay. Well, that explains why you like the Green Bay Packers. <laughs> that is right. Yeah, I, I come by it honestly. Right. And now we got to get you to like the New York Giants. <laughs> Not doing so good. <laughs> it's tough after this season, yeah. <laughs> okay. So uh, let's get into the uh, discussion on the project. What is the MDOT and uh, what is the label project that you've been working on with your students and communities members? It's part of a course that I really wanted to offer on American labor history. And um, I taught the class for the first time in the fall of 2022. And I was really interested um, in giving students a chance to kind of think about the moment that we are in, in terms of labor organizing and labor history. So the course begins way at the beginning of early American history, goes all the way through the modern age. And part of the course is motivated because I want students to think about diversity and power and justice and identity in contemporary America. And I wanted students to do this, to have this experience, um, really thinking about what we talk about in the classroom beyond the classroom by interviewing people in the community, labor organizers, working people in the community, because I think it's such an important moment for students to really think about and understand the the challenges that working people face in Saratoga County in particular, but generally in the United States. And I really wanted them to have a, a kind of collaboration with people. Um, so the project involved my students going off and I helped kind of facilitate making connections with labor organizers. And then my students put together teams and they reached out and they conducted interviews. Mm -hmm. They invited labor organizers to campus. They edited the interviews. Uh, they learned the skills of doing interviews. And then what I 
really have been able to do recently is take those interviews and then post them online. And my dream with this is to establish the Saratoga Labor History Digital Archive as a place where people interested in local labor history can go and listen to interviews, see transcripts, read short articles, uh, find out how to make connections with labor organizers in the community. So it was really, it emerged out of this class that I taught and really driven by a desire to give students a chance to think about what it is that working people do and how they struggle with their lives. Mm-hmm. So what did the students uh, respond to this project? I think they loved it. A lot of them came in not anticipating it. They weren't um, sure what the the course was going to involve. And I think when I told them they'd be interviewing people, a lot of them were a little nervous because uh, they'd never done this kind of work before. But as students really started doing these interviews, as they got to talk to people in the community, they really enjoyed it. I think they felt a sense of... Uh, passion for the project. One of my students continued and did another interview with another labor organizer the semester afterwards. And um, I think going through the process of thinking about how to talk with people and help them share their stories is something that students at the end really enjoyed. They really like sitting down and, and talking to folks and really thinking about how to share these stories with a, with a larger audience. Mm-hmm. So what been the support of the uh, school in reference to the project? Have you got a lot of support from the school? We've gotten a lot of support from MDOCS, the More Documentary Studies Collaborative, which is this fantastic storytelling institute at Skidmore that started about 10 years ago. Um, In particular, uh, there is an initiative called the Co-Creation Initiative, And that is really what introduced me to you, Willie. And uh, you helped a lot building connections with people in the community. So there's been a lot of support for this uh, within MDOCS on campus in particular. And as I share stories about this with my colleagues, um, people are excited about it. They're really interested to hear how it went and they're interested in how this is a kind of model maybe for a project that other people can do. So it's been it's been great. Skidmore's been a great place to foster this kind of work. Mm-hmm. Now I know you uh, got into this project. And it's around labor history. So uh, what excites you you about labor history that you want to uh, do this? Well, it's part of it is about my own background, mm-hmm. and um, I've got you know I grew up with a with a dad. My dad was a political scientist, mm-hmm. and he was very engaged in the community. So he took me to events, and he took me to all sorts of activities, and I just kind of grew up believing in this kind of broader civic engagement. In terms of labor, in particular, um, I was a member of a labor union in graduate school when I was a teaching assistant. I was a member of a labor union when I was a faculty member in Pennsylvania and at Florida. So I'm just passionate. I've seen how this kind of organizing works. And, you know, I marched for healthcare. Mm-hmm. Um, we did all kinds of activities trying to get tuition waivers and to shed light on some of the struggles that we faced as teachers. And um, what I took away from that is really the power of this kind of organizing. And, and understanding that people can make a genuine difference if they come together and if they 
really think about the struggles that they share in common. So there's kind of an autobiographical story for me. As a historian, I always love tracking down stories that, that seem hidden or seem on the fringes. And I think that people are increasingly interested in the story of organized labor and, and the history of American workers. So that's what excites me kind of personally. I get excited intellectually because I just think these kinds of stories are so important. And we're at such an important time, too, where there's all kinds of labor organizing going on with actors, with the UAW, with non-tenure track faculty members at Skidmore. So I just I think I'm excited by the moment where we're in. And I'm excited by the opportunity to give students a chance to think about how we got to where we are. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, I know you, you say you you know you have students uh, interviewing labor leaders and people, but what specific information again that you want to get from these interviews? I really want students to work with labor organizers to tell their personal story. So we spend a lot of time in class talking about how you get at these personal narratives that allow people to explain where they are today. So students began with kind of basic information. Where did you grow up? What was your life like? Uh, Where are you from? Um, what was it like to work? What was your first job? And then what drew you into labor organizing? And what are some of the challenges that you face in the process? So it really is a chance to, to personalize these stories. And, you know, students, we read, we read books in class talking about labor unions, but we didn't always talk about the personal side of those stories in these readings. So that's really what it's about. It's about giving people a chance to share their stories and give listeners a chance to think about how they got to the point where they are in the world around us today. Thanks to Willie for part one of his interview uh, with Eric Moser from Skidmore's MDocs program. And the second half of this discussion will air in a later episode. Now joining us once again is retired National Weather Service meteorologist Hugh Johnson for our weekly discussion of weather and climate. Welcome back, Hugh. Well, uh, hi, how you doing? Yeah, good to be back. Yeah, so Hugh, Saturday there was an annular e- eclipse with rings of fire out west, but only about 20% of the sun blocked here. I couldn't see it because of the clouds. Were you able to see it? Actually, I, Bria, I did see it. It was weird. I was out my sun porch and I just happened to look up and I, you know, you could see like, it looked like wax paper. I could just make out the sun and I could see the little bit of curvature, you know, a little bit of curvature from the uh, moon. Very, very slight. Um, I even took a picture of it. Not that it really came out, but yeah, I saw it for a few seconds, but no biggie. But I'm glad I saw it. So, Hugh, uh, Saturday's. Uh, eclipse was a new moon eclipse and in two weeks we'll have another eclipse with the full moon. Is there any effect of eclipses on the weather? Not lunar eclipses, absolutely not, but there are for um, solar eclipses, even partial ones over 50%. See, a lot of cooling cool air masses down uh, the partial eclipse between 50 and 100. She gets a totality, it doesn't change too much, but there's about a seven-degree drop in temperature. I've witnessed it. I've seen two solar eclipses, and I've felt it personally. It drops seven, eight degrees right before the uh, total occurs, and then afterwards it slowly goes up. And what that all does, Alexis, is to kill 
squash the cumulus clouds. If there are cumulus clouds and convective clouds out there, they go away because it cools the atmosphere enough that it becomes stable. And I saw that firsthand. And uh, you could, it was a, a, a picture on the, the Yucatan in Mexico. They showed a really good example of that. All the Q field just went away during the eclipse and then came back again. Now, just to let you know, an annual eclipse is when the moon and the sun line up perfectly, but the moon is at apogee. So it doesn't quite cover the entire surface of the sun. That's why you get that little ring of um, fire. The photosphere, and you cannot be looking at that. It's not the same as a total. Total, the, the whole photosphere is obscured. And we're going to have that on April 8th. That's going to be a different type of eclipse. Okay. Um, Hugh, I know we've talked about El Nino before, but it's getting mentioned a lot and that it will have an impact on our winter weather. I still don't get El Nino. Can you just explain it one more time, please? Oh, absolutely. It, it's, and I'll try to keep it simple. Um, it's basically part of a, um, an oscillation called the El Nino Oscillation, or otherwise known as ENSO. And it, it's in the Pacific. It covers so, you know, basically the equatorial, equatorial Pacific. And it's basically a one, two-year cycle where you, where you have it in an El Nino, you have high pressure in the Western Pacific, low pressure in the Eastern Pacific, and that creates a westerly flow. And what that does is it, uh, it, it completely squashes upwelling and allows warm water to pile up from the west over to Peru. Temperatures can reach over 90 degrees and kill fish and coral when they're really strong El Ninos. La Nina, on the other hand, which we've had three years in a row, it's just the opposite with the uh, low pressure in the Western Pacific, high pressure in the Eastern Pacific, and you get an easterly flow, which enhances upwelling. Therefore, you get a cold stripe of water in the Central Pacific and uh, it has the opposite effects of, of the, uh, of the uh, El Nino. And uh, this, is a good, this looks like it's going to be a pretty strong one. It may even be a super or extreme one. That still remains to be seen, but I'm telling. It looks pretty strong on the uh, on the pictures I see on the ocean profile pictures, and uh, what we we've seen in the past with strong El Ninos is generally we get a little bit above no, a, a normal snowfall, not necessarily a cold winter, but we do get above normal snow. Now there are many other things that go into play when it comes to El Nino, uh, many other uh, teleconnections that can really change the whole flavor of El Ninos. For instance, the Super El Nino of 2015-16, Southern California did not get the rain that it got in the Super El Ninos of 97-98 and 82-83. And they also got that last year with a La Nina. Why? Because of these other oscillations, one of which we won't talk about, we won't get time to discuss, but it's called the uh, MJO oscillation. It's another oscillation that works in the uh, equator down towards the Indian Ocean that can work in conjunction with the El Nino or against it. And the same thing with La Nina. And it turned out last year that was a bigger player than the La Nina. So the thing I want to bring home is that you cannot just look at one major oscillation and say that's, that's how our winter is going to be. It could, it could really vary. It varies with many other things. It's, it's much more complicated than that. Now, one thing I want to point out is Right now, the snow cover across North America is below climatological average. Although it's funny, I mentioned that Anchorage has already had, uh, not Anchorage, Fairbanks, a good solid five, six inches of snow on the ground. Looks like they're pretty well. Alaska's getting a bit of snow. 
and northwest Canada, but not much else. When you go further east in the northeastern Canada, there hasn't been any snow yet. So the snowpack is slow to go, and sometimes that's an indicator of what the early part of the winter is going to be. So maybe it won't be so cold to begin with. But a lot of people are thinking February could be the month where we really get hit this year with any snowstorms of the El Nino. And you have a strong southern jet stream, and that usually can help stir up coastal storms. And the uh, northern jet stream usually stays further north. But once in a while, because of a, a polar vortex, and it, it drops the, that polar board, it drops that uh, jet stream, the two phase, and you can get a very powerful storm. And we saw that in 1516, Mid-Atlantic got very heavy snow. We missed that storm entirely, but as the last really big uh, snowstorm that the Mid-Atlantic got. So my guess is that okay, this year so, going to be, oh, sorry. <laughs> sorry to cut you Go off, on. but we're running short on time and we want to get know, a little bit I of know. your forecast. Okay. Well, it looks like a, a pretty not terrible week coming up. Uh, what you see today is what you're going to get tomorrow. A breezy day, a few, a few light showers maybe, but nothing big. And temperatures a little cooler than normal. Nights are Wednesday and Thursday, sunnier, 60s, maybe touching 70. And then we're going to watch the weekend for a coastal storm. But it's still the jury's still out how that's going to form. There's a chance a lot of that might miss us. But we definitely have a chance of rain again on the weekend, unfortunately. Well, thanks, Hugh, for joining us once again. Always good to talk to you, and we look forward to talking yeah. with you next week. And that's our show. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I'm Alexis Goldsmith. And I'm Bria Barthel. Our engineer is the ever-amazing Sina Bazila Hickey. Sina, we appreciate you. And Alexis, nice having you back on Hudson Mohawk Magazine. We want to thank all the volunteers who made this episode possible. Other contributors to today's episode include Mark Dunley for headlines, Hugh Johnson, as always, for weather, and segment producers Marshall Lazarus, Elizabeth E.P. Press, Sina Bazila Hickey, and our roaming labor correspondent, Willie Terry. And we want to hear from you. Find us on Instagram and Facebook at Hudson Mohawk Mag, or send us an email to hmm at mediasanctuary.org. And tune in Wednesdays at 7 a.m., 9 a.m., and 6 p.m. to hear local news or stream Sanctuary Radio at mediasanctuary.org. Full episodes and individual stories are available on demand at our website and on your favorite podcast platform. And thanks to you, our listeners, for making this all worthwhile.